It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. As we see the coronavirus spike in states in the South and West, particularly, we're seeing leaders make moves to try to slow the spread in their communities. California, for example, backtracking, shutting down indoor activities again. Texas has ordered a statewide mandate requiring citizens to wear masks in public places. Recently, former Vice President Joe Biden went to Pennsylvania to speak about his $700 billion Build Back Better economic plan. The proposal centers around the protection of American industry and aims to reduce reliance on foreign manufacturing and to create more jobs. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania... Vice President Mike Pence campaigned in a bus tour across the state, signaling the significance of that state to both campaigns. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Trump commuted the sentence of former longtime advisor Roger Stone. That decision was met with some scrutiny, even prompting an op-ed from special counsel Robert Mueller defending Stone's indictment over the Russia probe. Our socially distant panel anxiously awaiting to discuss it all. But first, Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey gives us an update from the campaign trail. Joe Biden announced a plan on Tuesday to bring the U.S. to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and have a pollution-free power grid by 2035. That's 15 years from now. These two things are part of a plan that carries a price tag of $2 trillion. If I have the honor of being elected president, we're not just going to tinker around the edges. We're going to make historic investments that will seize the opportunity and meet this moment in history. A GOP spokesman warns of the high cost with this, quote, Joe Biden's economic and climate agenda shows that he is beholden to left-wing ideologues and not to the American people who face the prospect of eliminated jobs and higher taxes under his plan. Biden's argument on Tuesday was that Republican policies championed by President Trump are backward-looking and threaten American citizens' health. And he claims his agenda could create more than a million jobs, as it'll require a lot of people to retrofit 4 million buildings to be greener and to work assembly lines as he seeks to replace the humongous fleet of federal vehicles with electric cars. Fox News asked Biden as he left the lectern in Wilmington if he had any time for a question, and he just kept walking. In Wilmington, Delaware, Peter Ducey, Fox News. Peter, thanks. We move closer to the conventions now. Former Vice President Biden increasing his public appearances with his speech last week and further announcements about his Build Back Better recovery plan to come. This signals the Biden campaign perhaps making a play for President Trump's key issue, the economy. We'll start there with our panel. Founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow Matthew Continetti. Democratic strategist and syndicated talk radio host Leslie Marshall and Fox News politics editor Chris Steierwald. Uh, Chris, the economy play, obviously Biden, it's one of the only areas that we see in polls where Biden is trailing Trump. That's right. And, you know, uh, Donald Trump stole a lot of the Democrats issue set uh, for 2016. Uh, That's how a billionaire uh, reality TV show host from New York City beat Hillary Clinton uh, in an uh, election that was a lot of it was about economic populism. And how come these blue collar Rust Belt voters went for Trump and not Clinton? And a big part of it was that on 
uh, trade uh, and restrictions on trade, on uh, American-made, on American manufacturing. Trump talked about those things ceaselessly, and Clinton didn't. And Biden, who has a long record in this area, this is his this is his bailiwick, uh, clearly made it uh, plain that he is going to he's going to challenge Trump on that ground. Leslie, it seems the Biden campaign is also trying to expand the map, uh, running now uh, an election ad in Texas, which obviously is traditionally red. um, But it's an ad aimed at wearing masks and bouncing back from coronavirus, sensing some vulnerability there on the Trump campaign, I guess. Yeah, definitely. When you look at the numbers in Texas, it's a virtual tie. I saw the virtual pun there uh, between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Um, But when you look uh, more at these numbers and you break down on the issues, uh, the economy is Joe Biden's biggest vulnerability up against uh, Donald Trump. But unlike, and I agree with almost everything Chris said, um, unlike 2016, this is not going to be about it's the economy, stupid. This is going to be a referendum on the handling of COVID-19 uh, and of this cry for racial justice, uh, you know, versus law and order. Um, that's what the voters are going to go out there for. So I think Biden's campaign is wise to uh, look at Texas because you do have some purple pockets uh, within that state. And in addition, you do have spiking uh, COVID cases, sadly, there now. Uh, so rather than talking about the economy, which is his biggest vulnerability, hitting the president's biggest vulnerability among many voters, which is COVID-19. Yeah, Matthew, your thoughts? Trump is uh, really strong on television advertising. His campaign is flooding Facebook with these digital ads. But the president's actual campaign, that is his presence on the on the trail, is, um, I think, lacking. The embarrassment of the Tulsa rally, and I think that has kind of spooked the Trump campaign. They don't know what to do. They just canceled this rally that was scheduled for Portsmouth, blaming it on New Hampshire, blaming it on the weather. Uh, and uh, I think the having been robbed of his signature campaign style, which is the mass tentpole rally. President Trump doesn't know what to do. And instead, we find his administration spending more time campaigning against Dr. Fauci than about going after Joe Biden and drawing contrasts. I think this is a big error for Trump. And um, and I, I don't see how he's going to be making up the lost ground pursuing this sort of strategy. Chris, the contrast stuff, we talked about this last week on the podcast, and that is eventually, you know, when we get to the meat of this campaign, one would think you're going to start to see, okay, here's what he would do on taxes. Here's what he would do on regulations. Here's what happened when we did what we did before. But we haven't gotten to that part yet. So we're 16 weeks out. And four years ago, Trump was in uh, was at a, almost exactly the same number. He's at 41% nationally in an average of credible, useful national polls. Uh, and that's about where he was four years ago at this point. The difference is Joe Biden is running twice as well, basically in margin as Hillary Clinton. He's up uh, 10 points on Trump and he's up over 50%. Um, Donald Trump can win again and he can win again in an election like 2016, but that requires Biden down at Hillary Clinton levels, right? He needs to get Biden down to 45, 46. And the only way that he's going to do that is by raising doubts about Biden's 
uh, ability to govern, about the dangers of Biden, the, of radicalism. He's got to be in sustained attack mode on Biden to drag him down closer to where Hillary Clinton was so that Trump can again try to thread the needle with an Electoral College win. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, uh, Leslie, she was out on The Daily Show saying that we should all be prepared uh, that if President Trump loses, that he might might not leave office. He might not let go. Or I think the quote was, he might not go quietly. I mean... That is pretty rich, if you consider who didn't go quietly after 2016. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Little pot calling kettle there. Um, look, something that I thought that Joe Biden uh, did in baiting, I think he was baiting uh, the president, um, you know, was to say, like, you know, I, I don't think if he lose, he'll he'll go. And then what does Donald Trump say? If I lose, I'm going to go. Right. So he makes the president, you know, say that he's going to go. Um, I don't think Hillary's uh, baiting. I think she actually has genuine concern. Um, Are there pieces and pockets of my party that think he may not? Uh, Yes. But I mean, we also have Secret Service and others that could escort him out. Hopefully, if he loses, he will be a grown up uh, and do the right uh, thing. And, And honestly, I think the reason Joe Biden put it out there, you know, is a little bit of reverse psychology. And I hope that it works. (laughs) <laughs> um, speaking of reverse psychology, that that group, um, the Lincoln Project, Matthew is running a, a lot of ads. They seem well funded, uh, with a audience of one targeting. Uh, it seems President Trump's psyche about leaks and um, and all kinds of things. Yeah, I think um, the Never Trump faction in the Republican Party had kind of been written off as um, uh, irrelevant and and shrinking bread and. In the last few weeks, it seems that it's taken on kind of a new life. I don't think they're, the Never Trumpers are growing in numbers necessarily, but they are having, I think, um, some effect in kind of peeling off weak Republicans, people who may have voted for uh, Republican candidates in the past, maybe even supported Trump over Hillary because it was a choice of the lesser of two evils in their view in 2016. And then I think also they're having an impact among independent voters. You know, the president still retains great support among Republicans, but he cannot win this election with just Republicans alone. We continually neglect the fact that he won in he won independent voters in 2016 by about seven points, so above the you know, error um, margin of error. And right now he's he's depressed among independents, and he hasn't done much, I think, to appeal to them as well. And he would have to do that, I think, in order to, to win the type of victory that Chris envisioned or, or, or a larger one. What about this, this push to reopen schools? Understanding we're in spike situation in a number of different states, including where you are, Leslie, in California. Um, but there is this real push by the administration, the president's talked about it quite a bit, to get students in classrooms. Now, most parents, no matter if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, Martian, you want your kids <laughs> in school if you can. But the question is, if you can and you can do it safely, how is this a political issue that has suddenly taken on its own life? Chris? Yeah, was it, I, I think, Matthew, was it King Canute who ordered the tide to recede? You, uh, I, I will refer to you to all antiquarian references. Uh, but the president can't make the schools open up. He can't. It's not within his power. It's not within the power of the federal government. He cannot do it. 
Um, and the problem for politicians, so Trump says schools must reopen, you will reopen, you're going to reopen. School districts, some are. We saw Orange County uh, this week came out and said, yeah, we're reopening 100%. But San Diego and Los Angeles counties both said no way. And there's unrest in Detroit as the summer school is supposed to start. This is a hyper local issue that will be determined on the city, county and state level and one that the president doesn't have much to say about. And if you say a lot about it and can't deliver the desired result, it just makes you look ineffective. And I think the problem here is Trump is putting a lot on the school question, but it's not a question that is within his power to answer. I mean, you mentioned Detroit. There's a protest about uh, at the bus bus depot where the school buses come and go for summer summer school, and uh, some parents saying that needs to stop, close down. I mean, it seems like this is going to be, and we'll see where we are come November. But it seems like it's going to be a big issue, Leslie. Uh, absolutely. Look, there, there. I live in California, largest state in the country. Uh, 55% of the cases here, uh, COVID cases, are Latinos who the majority of our essential workers work outside the home. That's a concern uh, to some of the people that work at home and have that luxury that their children are going to be going school, to school with other parents who are working outside of the home. And, and, and you see all of the differing opinions up and down the coast in California. Chris had mentioned Orange County. Orange County not only is opening their schools, they're doing it without social distancing and without masks. You guys know my husband's a physician. My husband's like, not a good idea. It really depends, and it shouldn't be a political issue. It really depends on where in your state you live. Not every place in Texas or Florida or California is spiking and surging. But for those areas that are, uh, my children should not have decisions made for them in, you know, as to whether they're going to go into the classroom or not, uh, c- compared to less dense areas of the state that may not have the type of numbers that we have uh, and, and the number of cases that we have. And the science is still out. We have research about vitamin D f- deficiency. We have research out there about the influenza Kawasaki-like syndrome that children in New York had. Uh, we have uh, more uh, information out there in the UK about Southeast uh, Asian children that are affected differently than Anglo children. There's just not enough information. So if we are spiking like we are here in California, I say we have to keep the children safe. I understand people uh, definitely have uh, child care uh, situations, uh, many of them, but we don't want to be having a different conversation months from now. And, and then scientists and doctors coming out saying, whoops, guess we were wrong. Children are vulnerable, even yeah. though they're not flooding our ICUs which, and ERs right now. Which they have said that this thing, they're learning more every day. I mean, we, we still don't officially know, Matthew, whether you actually have antibodies, antigen, when after you get it. You, there's a study in the UK that says after three months, it all goes away and you're then vulnerable again. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. There's so much we still don't know about coronavirus that it is so frustrating. And it's not like anything we've ever faced. And I just wonder... You know, getting kids back to school, there are some districts in the country where kids can't either afford the computer at home or don't have the broadband to be able to compete. And suddenly you lose a year or two for a generation that should be in school. 
I mean, the, the impacts to children's education, to their psychological health, to their social abilities um, is, is staggering. And as you point out, Brett, the schools are more uh, than simply educational institutions in our society. They're, off, they're often now care institutions, daycare, meal supplements, uh, and we're robbing our entire society of this. The goal should be to return children to school as safely and as soon as possible. And there are going to be different ways that you can approach doing that. I, since the beginning of this pandemic in China, the weight of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence is that children are at much less risk um, of, of serious impacts uh, from the virus than adults. The real obstacle, I think, to opening the schools is not students. It's not even the parents who, as you note, are ripping their hair out, wanting their kids to go back to school. It's the teachers and the administrators in these educational um, uh, districts. Uh, and they are, they are scared of contracting the virus. And um, they, have, they have as much veto power as parents. And I think that will be the real obstacle to um, resuming uh, the, the semblance of normal life that would accompany children going to school, you know, twice a week even. Um, all right, back to the campaign. And that is, each of you just quickly, uh, paint a picture how Donald Trump wins looking at the current environment right now. How does it happen? Chris, Leslie, Matthew. Uh, he, Trump needs to really hurt Biden or for Biden to really hurt himself. Uh, I think the, the best way that that could happen for Trump would be that as Democrats become overconfident and irrationally exuberant, they're looking at a guy up 10 points in the polls, the Senate maps expanding as they become irrationally exuberant, they will become more demanding of Biden. Uh, in terms of what they want from policy promises and that they will become less guarded in their attitudes and statements uh, and that they'll that they'll get overconfident and uh, trip on their own shoelaces. Leslie, I think he has to hope that um, those people that support Biden uh, in the polls um, don't show up to vote. Uh, because one of the things that I saw in 2016 is when I saw those crowds of Donald Trump's and people said, oh, don't worry about the crowds. I said, I'm worried about the crowds. I think he could win if those people show up to vote. Um, so if he has the people that normally would come out for his rallies, uh, come out to vote for him in November and uh, doesn't have or figures out a way to, I don't want to say suppress the vote, uh, but deter those from coming out to vote for Joe Biden, uh, then he can win. Um, otherwise, I, I don't think so. Then again, uh, this is not going to be a landslide for either candidate. The country's very divided. This is going to be a very tight race. But Leslie, do you think that there will be debates? I mean, there's all this talk in the Biden campaign, apparently, about putting stipulations on to the fact where, you know, if he doesn't release his tax returns, if something else doesn't happen, then Joe Biden doesn't debate. I think Joe Biden should debate. I, I think that's what the American people, you know, expect. And I think there will be debates. I'm just not sure they'll be in the same room. And I'm sure that Trump and his campaign will make a big deal, you know, out of that, um, you know, because Joe Biden you know, has to practice what he preaches and he preaches, you know, wear a mask, uh, social distance, uh, lead by example. They could be six feet apart on a stage uh, with uh, out an audience and moderators, you know, far enough back like yourself, Brett, you know, we want you to be safe. Um, but uh, I think the American people need to see those uh, three debates, although I do think that the people have, even without a debate, uh, largely uh, decided, as we see from the numbers. 
Yeah. I mean, hopefully there'll they'll be those. We saw one that was during, you know, the uptick in the beginning of coronavirus at the end of the Democratic primary between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Um, no audience. Uh, CNN did that debate. So it could be a template. Uh, Matthew, about the uh, Trump victory part. I think President Trump has to hope that in October of 2020, um, the this resurgent first wave that we're experiencing now has faded. The economy is recovering. Um, Biden reveals himself to be an emperor with no clothes at the debates, not really in command of the situation, stumbling over his words, confused about um, his promises, and also in hock to the left that Trump can exploit. And then, you know, he can pray, Trump can pray for an October surprise, which is that this Operation Moonshot comes up with some news about a viable vaccine. Uh, for coronavirus. They're spending a lot of money and a lot of different labs are working on it. Some combination of those things, I think, could turn this around for Trump, but, I, but it would be happening very late. It would be, you know, be a sudden kind of surge um, and shift in fortunes. That you the know, president- just, just in, as we're talking, is the Republicans' plan to move the Florida convention events outdoors because of coronavirus, um, saying we are planning for multiple scenarios various health precautions. We had already contracted with several venues around this area, including multiple outdoor venues. Uh, Sounds like they're looking at options, but that's a much different tone than President Trump was taking about Jacksonville and moving it out of Charlotte because of that, Chris. You know, I've, um, I've said before, and I reiterate, one of the big problems that Trump has this time is too much money and too much campaign. It's bloated. It spends too much. It does too much. And it's not decisive. Whatever you say about Trump's 2016 campaign, it was him and he was decisive and it veered quite a lot, but it veered with real vigor and vim. Uh, This is exactly the kind of splatter paint, uh, misguided effort that we have come to expect from a Trump campaign that can't seem to shoot straight. If, If you can't just own up and say, now is not the time. We're going to do it a different way. You continue to feed a narrative that you don't know what you're doing and that you're not in, not in command of your faculties, despite having, uh, you know, a billion dollars or whatever at your disposal. Last thing, Leslie, uh, the hunt for a VP nominee uh, takes little twists and turns. And the latest iteration in conventional wisdom is that Joe Biden doesn't want to be over shown doesn't want to be outshined by the uh, by a VP nominee um, so Karen Bass congresswoman is is now in the mix any thoughts we had Val Demings from Orlando we had Kamala Harris from California the senator who obviously ran for president uh, what do we think well I think when you you talk about that Brett I I, I think honestly that is in a sense a wise decision you want chemistry with whoever you pick um, but you never want the number two to outshine uh, the number one. And I think that's in anything, not just in politics or the presidency. Um, but then again, because we've talked about this before, uh, you know, he also has to look at who might be president after him, especially if he is only going to uh, lead and govern for four years, which is possible for, you know, just one term. Um, so I- I'm not surprised he doesn't want to be upstaged. You know, nobody does who's number one and anybody running for president has a sizable ego. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised at that. And Kamala Harris is definitely a name. Senator Harris uh, definitely 
uh, I, I think could um, outshine him uh, in the long run. And th- there, are, there are rumblings to that effect, and there have been uh, all along since alone, before the debates and uh, before yeah. she attacked him during the debate. Yeah, exactly. Let alone the first debate, a uh, little dust off about busing. Matthew, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, maybe that remark that you mentioned from Biden uh, would say that he's souring on Kamala. I think it also would be a way for him to signal he's he's moving away from Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, a lot of people are still uh, pressuring him. Uh, Stan Greenberg, the Democratic pollster in particular, is highly influential, thinks that, you know, Biden's support is soft in a lot of ways. It's soft, especially among uh, young people and um, and committed liberals. And a Warren uh, Veep nomination would, would strengthen that. Uh, last word, Chris. You know, uh, the Trump needs the race to change dramatically, but 16 weeks, as we know, is a long time. A lot of things can happen. But the most important thing that Trump has to do more than anything else, too many cell phones, too many unforced errors. He's got to get off the front page. He's got to get out of the news for just a minute to let the scrutiny fall on Joe Biden and find some of those cracks uh, that my colleagues are talking about here. Uh, if, if this election is a referendum on Trump, Trump will lose. He's got to find a way to get some of the focus on Biden. You know, some of his best campaigning, according to his staff, was at the end when he was on the teleprompter and mm-hmm. uh, coming in strong, but uh, got off the Twitter. We'll see if that happens. Uh, panel, thanks. On uh, Here's a little campaign trivia for you. On July 14th, 1913, in Omaha, Nebraska, Gerald Ford was born. Starting out in the U.S. Naval Reserve, rose to the rank of lieutenant commander before switching his interests to politics. While it was widely known, Ford became the 38th president of the United States after Nixon's resignation. Before this, he became the first person appointed to the vice presidency following the resignation of Spiro Agnew in 1974. That will do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Matthew, Leslie, and Chris, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.